Let's turn to Matthew chapter 20, if you've got a Bible there. I think it's going to be on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 20 through 28. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? We are able, they said to him. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and left is not mine to give. Instead, it belongs to those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and the men of high position exercise power over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, we're thinking, of course, in now this Advent season, first Sunday in Advent, about the coming of the Son of Man and his purpose uh, in ransoming a people for himself. And uh, over the next few weeks, we'll be thinking a lot, of course, as believers about the incarnation. But I want to focus uh, in what I want to say this morning about Jesus' view of power and authority. There's a story told about the famous uh, and brilliant composer, Johann Sebastian Bach. One day, some acquaintances of his were heaping praise on him for his brilliance and his skill as, a, as an organist. And he apparently replied with a characteristic wit and humility. He said, there is nothing very wonderful about it. You only uh, you have only to hit the right notes at the right moment, and the instrument does the rest. And for those of you who play a musical instrument, uh, you will know that it's all about the challenge of hitting the right notes at the right moment. Humility, though, is an increasingly rare uh, commodity. It's an increasingly rare virtue amongst, uh, in, within the context of our culture. And of course, godly humility is the opposite of pride and conceit. And pride in man often leads to a desire for position, for power, for the purposes of dominating or subjugating others. We're good at spotting the failure of pride in other people, uh, we're not always so adept at recognizing it in ourselves. 
And in his uh, very well-known book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis actually analyzed the issue of pride. And he said this, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Pride. Now, in our passage, we have a situation where Jesus' aunt, Salome, comes with her sons, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. These are the first cousins of Jesus. And probably on the basis of the reality of a familial relationship, of having a special connection by blood to the Lord, asks for a special place of honor and power next to Christ in the kingdom, to be at his left hand and his right hand. Now, those are the seats of authority, especially the right hand. The right hand is the symbol of the place of power and authority. Remember what the scripture says, God says of the son, sit at my right hand until I make an enemies, your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this was a request by Jesus' aunt and his cousins to sit in the place of ultimate power and authority outside of the Lord himself in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, knowing the hearts of people, recognizes immediately that the root of this request is not service, but pride, a prideful desire for power and authority to lord it over others. And he turns down the request. He actually notes that these places are appointed by the Father. But it's not, uh, it's not his part to make those seats available. Now, when the other disciples hear about this, the 10 other disciples, what's their reaction? They're furious. Why are they furious? Well, they want those seats. They were banking on those seats themselves. And yet here, because of the familial relationship there's this special request being made and they're very angry about it. And so it becomes an occasion for Jesus to teach something critically important about the true nature of power, of authority, and of greatness in the kingdom of God. The first thing then is the idea of pagan or Gentile power and authority. Now remember that Jesus' ministry is happening in the first century 
This is the Greco-Roman world. It's the Roman Empire. The symbols of Roman power, the approach of Roman power is all around them. This was Gentile power. And so Jesus deals first with the non-Christian conception of power and authority, and then he contrasts it with God's view of power and authority. Let's look at verse 25 through 27 a moment. Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them and the men of high position exercise power over them. It must not be like that among you. The expression actually to uh, dominate them or to uh, lord it over would be another way of translating it is actually a very unique word in the New Testament. It's only ever used negatively. It actually brings two words together, lord and down, katakurio, katakurio. Kurio bit is lord. The kata bit is down. And it means to subjugate, to overcome. It was used in the book of Acts, actually, in Acts 19.16, where the seven sons of Sceva are trying to cast out uh, devils, and they are overcome by a possessed man. It's used also in 1 Peter 5 to refer to ungodly church authority. So it always has this negative connotation, this particular word. And the Lord points out that Gentile pagan powers, rulers, crave this kind of subjugating authority and power. Domineering, treading on others to get to where we want to get to. The goal is subjugation, the goal is manipulation and control. It's those very desires for power and control that led to the crucifixion of our Lord that is spoken about a bit earlier in this chapter. And then Jesus refers also to not just the katakurio, the Lord and down, this idea of dominating them, but he talks about the exercise of power or the exercise of authority. And again, it's an unusual word. It's not the typical word for power, which is exousia, but it has the prefix kata again. Kat exousiadzo. And it means, again, to put down, to subjugate, to lord it over. So the Lord Jesus is referring to the use of authority that's born out of pride, of selfish ambition, and of a, of a desire simply to dominate and control others. This power and authority is ungodly. It has no reference to God. It's unconcerned with his word. It's sinful. It's self-centered. Now, before we take a look at what Jesus contrasts this with, let's just dive a little bit deeper into the significance of what he was saying here. This is the humanistic approach to power and authority. This is the strife that the disciples were slipping into. 
They were surrounded by this kind of attitude towards power and authority, both amongst the Jews and amongst the Roman authorities. Without regeneration, without new birth, this lust for power is basic to sinful human nature. Not just a lust for power, but a lust to manipulate or control. And it becomes then our goal in both big and small ways to take the posture of these disciples. It can be true in our personal relationships, true in our marriages, in the church, in the workplace, and of course in politics and in world affairs. Now in God, of course, power and authority are inseparable. The Bible doesn't view power as demonic. It's always the direction or the use to which power is put that is at issue. God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. In the Bible, authority is always hierarchical under God. So power and authority are delegated and they're limited. But the Gentile mind that Jesus is describing, the pagan mind, was elitist. It was grounded in man-centered concerns, in vain pride and glory. Think about the Caesars. In this view, authority and power aren't united in God, but they're merely pragmatic. They're pursued for the sake of power itself or some other end that's got nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Power and authority are disconnected from God's word and purpose, and it leads to putting others down, treading on others, subjugating others, controlling others. This might be in the political sphere or the academic sphere or the social sphere or the familial sphere, even in the life of the institutional church. Think about institutional authority for a moment. Having institutional authority in the family or the church or the university or in the state, wherever it may be, does not make it godly authority. Just because we possess an institutional authority doesn't make it godly authority. Legitimate areas of authority can be abused when placed in term, under uh, ungodly leaders and ungodly premises. For example, an institutional church that denies the authority of God's word, sets aside the truth of the gospel. It may have an institutional authority, but it has no authority from God. It doesn't wield godly authority, and of course the same can be true of the state. So this sort of power, this this putting down, does not minister. It doesn't serve others. He uses others. And because we are sinners, it often takes delight in stamping on others. And we're surrounded by this attitude in modern times, but it isn't new. A few years ago, I remember reading a book about Genghis Khan. He was the 12th century founder of an Eastern Empire that spread through much of China and Central Asia. And when I was reading this, I thought that it epitomized the pagan idea of power. 
Remember the, the cruelty of the Roman Empire that, uh, that was present around the disciples, around the Lord Jesus. Genghis Khan stated, and I quote, the greatest pleasure is to vanquish your enemies and chase them before you, to rob them of their wealth and to see those dear to them bathed in tears, to ride their horses and clasp to your bosom their wives and daughters. That was his goal, that was the goal of his men. And that empire spread misery wherever it went, eliminating entire populations, subjugating others into vassal states. It epitomized the concept of Gentile pagan power. We've got more current examples. Think about what's just happened on October 7th. The Islamic world, parts of the Islamic world, movements like ISIS and Hamas. Islam was born in the Arab world, the, spread through the Arabian Peninsula, North Africa, eventually made it to the gates of Spain before it was resisted. Muhammad spread his message by the sword. Islam means subjugation, to submit. The Muslim is one who submits. Islamic ideology is an ideology of power, of subjugation, of control, of the realization of the ummah, of world Islam, through the imposition of Sharia law. Most people in the West, including many Christians, are completely ignorant of the worldview of Islam. They don't understand it. They think it's a bit like Christianity with a few differences. Wrong. Wrong. If you want to compare the two worldviews, you have to compare the two founders and their lives and their testimony and their witness, their actions. The modern state, though, increasingly manifests a similar ideal, and not just in places like China or North Korea or Iran, but even here in the West. We see an increasing desire to subjugate and control and manipulate populations in terms of progressive ideologies that are to be imposed on everyone, and then if possible, spread all around the world so that we can impose our ideology on Africa and on Asia. And if they don't comply, we'll slap sanctions all over them if they don't accept the radical progressive agenda. This is a self-appointed elite that wants to tread on all resistance. And the world over, there is a craving for power. And Christians are often on the receiving end of the brutality. Open Doors, for example, the missions organization and agency said that almost 6,000 people in 2022 were killed for their faith, for their witness to the gospel, martyred. Two, uh, sorry, 360 million experienced high levels of persecution, Christians, in the last 12 months. We actually live as people in an era 
our own era, and historians will look back at it as such, as an era of power, madness, and mass slaughter on a grand scale. Between 1914 and 1945 alone, 70 million people died through war, famine, massacre. Since then, things got worse with the communist massacres and unremitting wars and conflicts. The abortions, the euthanasia, the killings. A higher ratio of people have died in our era than any previous era in history. The craving for power and authority to subjugate others. George Orwell, I hope you've heard of George Orwell. Most people have heard of George Orwell's most famous book, 1984. He was a former Marxist, became disillusioned with his Marxism towards the end of his life. And in his book, 1984, he sets out a vision of the future and in one of the concluding passages, this is what we read. When you think of power, you think of the world socialist revolution as designed to improve the lot of man, as designed to further humanity, equality, and brotherhood. But the goal is power. And the best image of the future is of a boot grinding down a human face forever. Now that is the pathology of fallen humanity. The commission of dominion, of service under God, is distorted into domination and destruction. The idea of naked power to bring about change and to reorder the world. This was the ancient Greek idea of power. Aristotle and Plato were elitist to the core. And where did the power need to reside? Oh, of course, with the philosopher kings who would impose their idea on the rest of society, the lust for control. You see, without Christ, this kind of Orwellian vision is played out. Today, culturally, what we hear about essentially with, well, what is popularly called woke culture is perpetual revolution. Destruction, violence, that the way to change is anarchy, power to change by destruction. Without the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the cross, God's vision for power and authority and dominion, change by destroying things is seen as power and true authority. Destruction of the church, destruction of marriage, destruction of the family, of human dignity, destruction of the unborn, destruction of human sexuality, destruction of the elderly or the sick and infirm, the depressed, destruction of the banks, destruction of the economy, destruction of moral absolutes, and maybe we'll just throw in destruction of the Jews as well. Change by destructive revolution. Standing on, dominating, coercing 
others. Now, that's very different from what Jesus had in mind. That's pagan, that's, he says, Gentile power and authority. But he says it shouldn't be this way among you. Remember in the book of Acts, Jesus said to the disciples in Acts 1.8, you will receive power. The problem is not power. He says you will receive power, but that's when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. That's what the power is for, to be his witnesses. In Psalm 62, 11, we're told power belongs to the Lord. Power belongs to God. And our power to change things outside of God and his word is at best an illusion. We cannot be creative, but only destructive when we take power and authority to ourselves in this kind of way. It always ends up destroying everything. Power and authority are the province of God and God alone and his delegation. Legitimate godly power is given by God and limited by God for his purposes. So if we're going to receive power to be witnesses, we're told that actually real power in the world is in the gospel. Paul says the gospel is the dunamis, the power of God unto salvation. God's power is manifest in the good news. What is the good news? The good news is that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is establishing his kingdom of righteousness and truth and peace, and that entrance into this kingdom is by the blood of his cross through repentance and faith. And this gospel is God's power that brings not just superficial external change, but brings rebirth, new life, new creation, internal transformation. You see, without this change by God, our efforts are coercive and always only external. They never reach to inner transformation because we can't change the essence of people's nature. And this gospel of power is unchanging. It doesn't adapt itself to our time and culture, it's invariant. In scripture, God says, I am the Lord and I change not. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means actually still today, there are only two visions of power and authority. In that sense, there are two gospels. Jesus has told the disciples what they really are, because remember he ends by saying in verse 28, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So one vision of power is wrought by the ransom of Christ, and the other is in terms of a coercive, planned society of domination and control. 
where human beings are born again by manipulation of man's environment. If you were at our conference yesterday, we talked about the attempts to technologically, educationally, through economics, politics, radically change humanity. This is humanistic dominion where people are trodden on and become serfs, slaves. But human beings cannot be reborn this way. Coercive change is futile. Whether you think that you can bring about change by sort of occultic spiritualism, by you know the power of feng shuiing your apartment, or by the power of politics and re-education, or by Sharia law or any other means, no lasting true change comes about on those terms. It's interesting that the Christian is not actually commanded to change people. Now there's a weight off. You are not commanded to change people. Regeneration is God's work. We're not called to change others, even if that's your husband or wife. I know it's tempting, but that is not our task, right? That's not our task. And that's a major burden lifted from our shoulders when we realize that it is not our calling to somehow manipulate or coerce change. Rather, we are called to serve God and others in terms of his word and purpose so that he can bring about his new creation. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We cannot make a new creation out of other people, but we can serve God's purpose and watch him make new creatures. And that brings me to my final point here. Service is power. Service is Power. This is what Jesus is teaching the disciples. This is what he's telling them about the difference between pagan conceptions of authority and power and God's vision of authority and power. Power, total power, absolute power belongs to the Lord. And we are his vicegerents or his vice regents. We're those who serve under. We are kings and priests, but it's a service not to dominate and stand on, whether even in the name of freedom or social justice or anything else. Anything that's not in terms of God's will and purpose is really self-aggrandizement, self-glorification. So Jesus says, it will not be so among you. It's not going to be like the pagans amongst you. Whoever would be great among you must be your deacon, your servant. That's what the word deacon means. Must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your doulos, bondservant, slave. The two words here remind us actually that we are all Christ's diaconate, every single one of us. 
We are all his bondservants. And our life is to minister and serve under God his purposes to serve others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ in whatever context he has placed us. That might be in the church. It might be as prime minister. It might be in a ministry of corrections. It might be in education. Wherever God has placed you. Isn't it interesting that in Christendom, what's left of it, what we call Western civilization, what we called our rulers and those who exercise authority was drawn from Jesus' teaching about power and authority. They're not called Caesars, Führers, dictators. No, we have civil servants, prime ministers. The most senior minister is a minister. We have a ministry of corrections. The exercise of authority was thought of in terms of ministry and service. We call those who lead the church ministers. Deacons who serve. And this is from Christ's example himself. The son of man who has all power and authority in himself, the son of man came not to be served, but he says to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the most manly thing that you can do. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Leadership in marriage, in the family. What's the requirement of the husband? That he's ready to lay down his life. Just as Christ laid down his life for the church. Leadership, authority, power is service. Now we, of course, cannot make any atonement. Jesus made atonement for sin. But we can exercise ministry service that is separated from the pagan concept of power and authority. See, the disciples were confusing the two types of kingdoms, man's kingdom and God's kingdom. As regenerate believers, we are to exercise his authority in his name by his power in terms of his kingdom. Because any authority or power that we have is purely derivative. What did Jesus say? The last thing he said to his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. That's fairly unequivocal. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Therefore, you can go. And you can disciple and teach nations. It would be the height of arrogance, wouldn't it, and conceit to think that the Great Commission was carried out on the basis of our power and authority. That we could somehow lecture everyone and teach nations how to behave if it was on the basis of our authority. It's all on the basis of Christ's authority. 
Christian greatness then is not changed by coercion, but by ministry and service. We have no power on our own terms. And instead of craving power and authority, we're called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his justice. And that's difficult because positions of influence, positions of power and authority, if we're going after them in a self-centered way, it's not that we shouldn't eagerly desire God's gifts, Paul says, and he who desires to be an overseer, Paul talks about the life of the church, desires a good thing. But the task of seeking first his kingdom and ministry and service invariably means the postponement of our personal satisfaction in the immediate, getting our way, having our desires met. In terms of God's future, we serve as bondservants for the purposes of God so that in so doing, we exercise an authority and power that comes from beyond history and has eternal implications. So we are, for example, laboring that our children and our grandchildren, our families, our churches, our communities, our cities, will be found in the faith tomorrow. Even if that means postponing immediate personal satisfaction for myself. It's this kind of service that actually creates and builds a future what we might call the culture of Christ. That is not about me and my gratification. When, when Salome came with the sons of thunder, James and John, what was that about? It was about them. It was about their gratification, their satisfaction, their sense of position amongst the disciples while the Lord's promised it to James and John. There, we're going to be in the positions of power. You're going to be doing what we say. The ungodly want power for personal glorification here and now, and they'll tread on others to get it, but that's not our calling. Like Christ, we use power and authority to minister to others, to serve others. And I want to tell you that that is a startling, unimaginable power. Look at the way Christ, by giving his life as a ransom for many, who came to serve. Look how he's transformed the world. Aren't you here today? You're worshiping Christ today. This is an unimaginable power. This is omnipotent power because this is the authority and power of God himself. Not our paltry power. We all need power. You need power to get out of bed in the morning. How we use the power and authority that God gives, that's what's most important. To know that all things are actually in his hands. And we don't have to change everybody else around us. We just obey him. We serve him. Knowing that we actually can't see one minute ahead, never mind to the climate apocalypse of whatever it's going to be. All the drivel we have to listen to. People who can't even predict the weather next week think they know when the end of the world is coming. No, true peace is in true service. 
Today, where we make our church home, how we treat our spouse, how we raise our children, how we educate them, how we work at our vocation, how we engage in civic life, is not to be based on the criterion of self-gratification, domination, power in terms of ourselves. We're not to say, where will I feel good? Where will I feel better? What's going to make me the happiest? Where can I be entertained? Which church is going to powder my nose best? No, we're to say, how can I serve God and his kingdom and his righteousness? Remember what Jesus said, even in our search for satisfaction, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, we are in troubled and difficult times as Christians. We're living in a time when the exercise of power and authority has become increasingly pagan again. Freedoms are being taken away. It's about subjugation, manipulation, control. These are difficult times to live in. They're challenging times to live in. But we should not fear. Because God says, I am the Lord and I change not. Be still the Lord. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. He gave his life a ransom for many, and he has the power to make all things new. And we're his servants. We're his ambassadors with a glorious calling. And in it all, whatever we face together as his people, personally, as families, as churches, corporately, we are promised victory over all ungodly power and authority. This is the victory, says the Apostle John, that overcomes the world, even our faith. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.